0: Now once again, brethren, as we stand on the threshold of another hour or 50 minutes of instruction, let's pray and ask God's help, and especially having had a lunch and a full tummy and our blood working down here, it can tend to leave us a little oxygen starved up here, and the Lord is our loving Father who knows our frame, remembers we are dust, He made us with this physiology, and he can undertake for us in it. So let's pray for his special help in this time together after lunch. Our Father, we are indeed so thankful that as our loving, caring, heavenly Father, you do know our frame, you remember that we are dust, And we would come to you in the felt awareness of that dustiness of our creaturely dependence upon you. And we pray for special grace that we may have the mental and spiritual and emotional alertness that these weighty issues demand and of which they are worthy. We ask you to uphold and strengthen your servant that he may speak your word accurately and with warmth and passion, and that each of the brethren gathered for this instruction will know your help in the receiving of that word. So we call upon you, committing ourselves to you and seeking your grace promised so freely to us in Christ. Hear us as together we plead for this mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Calling of the Man of God to the Pastoral Office. It is this solemn and oft times vexing subject which forms the focus of our lectures as we work our way through this initial unit of our course in pastoral theology. Having set forth an overview of the entire course, I then sought to explain the reason for the wording I have given to the subject The biblical warrant for addressing this subject along with my own personal fears in making an attempt to address it in a responsible way. We then proceeded to examine the foundational principles which in my judgment must regulate our thinking and our actions concerning what constitutes a biblical and orderly call to the pastoral office. We then focused our attention upon the fundamental errors often present as people think and talk and act with respect to this subject, and then some of the common unbiblical and unrighteous reasons for which men assume or pursue, pursue the office. And in our last session, we began to open up the first of the four elements which comprise a biblical call to the pastoral office. And the first of these four elements I described as an enlightened and sanctified desire for the work of the pastoral office. In this hour, we move on to begin to examine the second element of a biblical call found in your notes a, as large letter B, namely a proven fitness for the work of the pastoral Office, a proven fitness for the work of the pastoral office. And we will consider the biblical materials relative to this matter of a proven fitness under three major subdivisions. First, Christian character. Secondly, Christian experience. And thirdly, requisite gifts. Now in taking up the subject of fitness for the work, let me say two things by way of introductory clarification. In dealing with these matters relative to fitness, I'm seeking to expound the biblical standard which must be attained at the time a man is formally proposed to the church in order to be officially recognized as a gift of the ascended Christ to his church. Therefore, for some of you younger men especially, I urge you not to be discouraged and assume that you must not be called if one or more of these graces is lacking in you at present. On the other hand, since these things are not acquired magically... Do not assume, if they are lacking, that they will just automatically fall into place and that on the day of your formal scrutiny for official recognition, they will just suddenly show up on their own. If you see or others see specific deficiencies in any of these areas of character, experience, or gift, you are to do what Peter says all believers are to do, you are to add to your faith all diligence and in that exercise to see these deficiencies wonderfully and powerfully met by the grace of God. Dabnius is especially helpful here in Volume 2 of his discussions, Evangelical and Theological, pages 30 and 31. He has a very wholesome perspective on the man who thinks God may be calling him, working consciously, deliberately, assiduously on those areas of perceived defect. Then the second thing I want to say by way of introductory clarification under this general heading of fitness is this. While the emphasis in these next few lectures will fall upon the presence and manifestation of those graces and gifts Prior to and upon one's entrance into the pastoral office, you and I must never forget that the maintenance and increase of these graces and gifts is a biblical responsibility. We must never think of ourselves like the college professor who breathes easily when he obtains tenure. He may never study as he did before, may never read, may never write, may never do the things that brought him to that place where he earned the position of a tenured professor, and in many cases, he begins to coast Or like the young man who aspires to get his badge in a very prestigious law enforcement agency and he does everything to pass the strength and endurance test, to have proficiency in the use of his firearms. And once he's gotten his badge, then he becomes a slobby, out-of-shape, imprecise man not fit to perform the task for which he was formally recognized and given his badge initially. The text which epitomizes the thrust of the teaching of the Word of God at this point is that text which Paul laid upon the conscience of young Timothy in chapter 4, verses 12 to 16 of First Timothy. "'Let no man think light of you because of your youth,' But be an example to them that believe in word, in manner of life, in love, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give heed to the reading, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Be diligent in these things. Give yourself wholly to them that your progress may be manifest unto all. And he doesn't say until you're 40 or till you are well established as a mature minister. Timothy was to carry to the end of his days this injunction, give yourself wholly to these things that your own progress in grace and gift, Timothy, may be evident to all. It may be real. It may be manifest. Constantly, perpetually pay close attention to yourself. A present imperative. Constant, close, careful attention to your teaching. Continue present imperative in these things. For in doing this, constant taking heed to yourself and to your teaching, persevering in that course, to the end of your days, Timothy, in doing this, you will save both yourself and those that hear you. So, By these two introductory clarifications, I'm aiming at, on the one hand, immunizing some of you against an unwarranted discouragement if indeed there are areas of defect identified as we work through these requirements. But on the other hand, I hope that some of you are stirred with a fresh reminder you have no right to coast or to assume that you can just allow things to go on as they've gone on for the past five or ten years. On the one hand, the evil of being overly discouraged, and on the other hand, falling into carnal presumption and carnal ease, have done untold harm to the people of God, when those in leadership patently fall short of what is so plain in the English Bible to the man sitting in the pew. You're calling on him to conform his life to the Bible. He reads, the bishop, the elder, the overseer must be and sees in you that which falls short of the standard. How in the world, how in the world can he receive the word of God? How can she receive the word of God from you and believe that you're really sincere? You call them to obedience while calling them from a posture of patent disobedience. And surely, if we are trafficking in the things that are supposed to cause our people to grow up into Christ, to grow in conformity to Christ, to grow in love to Christ, zeal for the kingdom of Christ, and we ourselves are not patently making progress in those things how can we persuade them that the things in which we traffic are indeed effectual to produce those ends when they're not evidently producing them in those of us who traffic in those very realities? Now with those introductory clarifications behind us, let's take up the first of the three major headings, the first category of the things which constitute a proven Fitness for the work of the pastoral office. And I've tried to capture the biblical emphasis with these words. Number one, the manifested grace, graces, plural, indicative of genuine, matured, balanced, and proven Christian character. What does God require of the one who aspires to the office and in aspiring to it is seeking an enlightened and sanctified perspective of what is involved in meeting the biblical qualifications? I answer by saying the manifested graces indicative of genuine, matured, balanced, and proven Christian character. First of all, consider with me the significance of the key words in this subheading. The focus of all the adjectives is in the words Christian character. Now by character I mean what a man is in his moral constitution. Not what he says he is or possesses, but what he actually is. And by Christian I mean that which has its source in the orbit of the dynamics of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Christian character is that, what, that which a man is as Christ lives in him, Galatians 2 and verse 20. And by manifested graces, I'm referring to the specific aspects of Christian character as they are present and discerned in a man's life in all of its manifold components. If Christian character is the sun itself, the manifested graces are the rays of the sun as they reach the earth with light and with heat. When the specifics are given in First Timothy 3 and Titus 1... It is assumed that these can be seen and known by observation without attaining to omniscience. It is assumed that they can be seen and known without omniscience. And then the four words which can be grouped together, the adjectives are genuine, matured, balanced, or symmetrical... And proven. And let me spend a moment to tell you what I mean by each of those words. Genuine. Paul speaks to Timothy in the language of his unfeigned, his genuine, his sure enough real faith in First Timothy one and verse six. He says that he remembers Timothy and he remembers the unfeigned faith which dwelt First, in his grandmother Lois, his mother Eunice, and he is persuaded dwells in Timothy. Also, I believe I have the wrong reference to that, but I know I've quoted the substance of that text. And since the scriptures speak of spiritual leaders who appear beautiful but inwardly are something else, Matthew twenty-three twenty-seven. The contrast being between outwardly appear and inwardly are. When I use the word genuine, I'm speaking of that which does indeed begin in the inner disposition and character of a man. This is not a matter of lead being overlaid with a thin layer of gold. Cut off a slice and you know very quickly that you have simply been looking not at a solid gold nugget, but a ball of lead overlaid with a thin layer of gold. And God wants us to be pure gold, genuine in our godliness. And then matured. By that word, I'm underscoring the fact that these graces of Christian character must be more than the buds just sprouting on the tree of a recent convert or a tree full of blossoms in the spring, but not yet matured into substantial fruit. It's interesting that there is not a grace of character mentioned in 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1 that is not elsewhere mentioned in the epistles and required of all Christians generically. Not a grace. Two gifts are mentioned, apt to teach and able to rule. But apart from those... If you do a word study of all the requirements of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, you will find those very words descriptive of aspects of Christian character laid upon all the people of God, male and female, generically. However, in the man of God who would take up the work of overseership, such graces must be matured beyond the level of the rank and file of God's people. Or he will not be able to fulfill one of the major aspects of an elder's job description. And what is that job description? 1 Peter 5, 3. Making yourselves examples to the flock. It is to be a conscious dimension of a pastor's walk before his people. To be able to say... Less than the Apostle Paul could say it, but in principle to say it, nonetheless, be followers of me, even as I am of Christ. And then, of course, the word that Paul gave to Timothy. Be an example of the believer. Even though you are relatively young, Timothy, you must outstrip the rank and file of God's people in those graces indicative of genuine and matured Christian character. And then the third word I've used is balanced, or perhaps you prefer symmetrical. Symmetry refers to the interrelationship of parts to form an aesthetically pleasing whole to the eye. Balance refers to equal weight in the offsetting parts of an object. And so when we read the words without, reproach It means that there is balanced Christian character. What is a man of great moral courage, but little or no sensitivity to people? Or what is a man in the ministry that has tremendous empathy and compassion, but no moral courage? No, there must be not only genuine, matured, but balanced Christian character, and it must in the fourth place be proven. This points to the fact that the man who has undergone, a man has undergone sufficient time and experience to test the apparent genuineness of his graces. And of course, this is the teaching of Romans 5, verses 3 and 4, the function of tribulation in working approvedness. The tribulation, the pressure comes upon us. And if we're the real thing, it will be manifested under the pressure. James 1, 2-4, count it all joy when you fall into diverse manifold, different trials, knowing that the trial of your faith works patience, etc. So the result of testing and trial is approvedness. And surely, if Paul says of deacons, let these first be proved 1st Timothy 3:10 how much more of elders who have the responsibility of the spiritual leadership of the people of God so then in stating that the first and most fundamental category of fitness for the office is manifested graces indicative of genuine matured balanced proven Christian character, this is precisely what I mean. And that brings us back to the old adage, it is the man that makes the minister and not the ministry that makes the man. Now having addressed my introductory clarifications and then an explanation of the key words, now we come to small letter B, an overview of, of the requirements of 1 Timothy 3, 1-7 to and Titus 1, to 5-9 as they relate to Christian character. And here I'm just going to read the two passages from the ESV and then begin to attempt uh, to lay out what they are saying to us. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer... so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And then the Titus passage. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are trustworthy and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those contradicted. And there I simply changed the translation of the word pistis with regard to the children. Now, when we see the two lists, it's obvious that they are not a mirror image, one of the other. And I want to say a word about the reasons for the differences in the two lists of the non-negotiable requirements for anyone aspiring to the office Of the pastorate? And I think part of the answer, and Fairbairn emphasizes this, is the peculiarities of the differing circumstances in Ephesus and in Crete. For example, the absence of the requirement, not a recent convert in Timothy, it's not found in Titus, would reflect something of the differing states of maturity in those two churches and also not only the different states of maturity, but the present pressures from false teaching. So there was a concern there at Ephesus that those who were brought into this position not be recent converts. There was need for even a greater level of maturity. Furthermore, I believe the undergirding principle is that each list is only broadly suggestive of the fundamental requirement of being blameless. While the term blameless, two different Greek words, basically synonyms, are used in 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.7, what follows, in a sense, is a commentary in specimen form of what it means to be blameless. But if these things were the beginning, middle, and end of the requirements and not primarily expressions of principal description of blamelessness, then they would have to be the same or we've had two different standards for the eldership. One in Crete and another in Ephesus and we know that that would not be the mind of God. So what I have done in comparing the two lists and in trying to lay out in sequential form those aspects of genuine, proven, balanced Christian character, I've sought to grasp the larger thing of which the specifics are illustrations of manifested grace Indicative of genuine, matured, balanced, and proven Christian's character. So then, the major concerns of the two statements of these requirements—what are they? Well, in both passages, the non-negotiable, uncompromising standard must be maintained. First Timothy three two. The bishop, therefore, day that little particle of necessity used by our Lord when He says in Luke 24, He opened up the Scriptures and instructed them how that the Christ must suffer. The very imperative that moves our Lord Jesus to the cross stands before the standard. The bishop, the overseer, the presbyter, the elder must be. It does not say it is good if he is. It is desirable that he should be. In most cases, we can hope and pray that he will be. No, the bishop must be. And likewise, in Titus 1 and verse 7, the same particle of necessity for the bishop must be. Now let me give a little illustration from personal experience. Way back in 1967, when we broke with the denomination with which I was connected when I first came to North Jersey in '62, the people who were committed to the truth said to me, Pastor, you have opened up the Word of God to us in so many areas where we realize our thinking was skewed. We've never really been taught what a church is what church membership involves, what an elder is, what a deacon is. Will you be our teacher? We'll dissolve our membership, we'll dissolve our leadership and recognize you as our teacher. And will you teach us from the Word of God these elementary things and then in due course we can reconstitute understanding what it means to be a church, what it means to be church members, what it means to recognize elders and deacons, Etc., and I agreed to that. So after nine months of doing that very thing, we reconstituted. And when we reconstituted, then I and one other brother were recognized as gifts of Christ to be shepherds, to be bishops, to be elders in what was then, uh, I think, Trinity Church of West Essex. I think that was our title. We've had two or three different names uh, since we began. Now, as we were entering into that period, I will never forget it, a brother who had had a tremendous influence in helping me and nudging me uh, with respect to coming into a more consistent understanding of the Reformed faith as it's embodied in our standards, etc., I was so excited when I discovered the Timothy and Titus passage. And I can remember sharing my excitement and saying, Oh, my brother, look, when we come to recognize elders and deacons, we don't need to waffle about. We've got the standard of God. And we're going to adhere to that standard. He discouraged me. He said, Al, you hold to that and you'll never have any elders. That's the ideal. That's sort of like positional sanctification, whatever that is, that's perfect. That's out there. But I mean, you've got to give a little bit here or there. I shall never forget it. I'm thankful to God I didn't take his counsel. And my posture was, if I or anyone else cannot pass muster before the must-be of God, we don't belong in the office. Period. End of discussion. Christ the King Christ the Lord, who gives gifts, says, you want to know my gifts? Here's the picture. Check their eyes. Check their ears. Check their nose. Check their chin. See if they got two hands, two feet. See if they got the eyes in the right place and the nose in the right place. The bishop must be. Christ has given us the portrait of his gifts. That we might look at the portrait and compare the face of the one aspiring. And if the two don't match, it is not a gift of Christ. You go to the airport to meet someone you've never met. Someone gives you a photograph. So you stand there and watch the people that come through. Well, here this guy is lily white, blonde hair, six foot four. He looks like he just came out of Denmark or Sweden. And you see some guy come through who's got dark hair, five foot seven, swarthy complexion. He said, there's my man. No, you're nuts. That's not your man. He doesn't fit the portrait. And likewise, my brethren, in both of these passages, we have non-negotiable, uncompromising standards that must, 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 day, 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 must be maintained. Secondly, in both passages, it is required that there be no just grounds to charge an overseer with any pattern of inconsistency in godly character. And I've chosen again the words very carefully. In both passages, it is required that there be no just grounds to charge an overseer with any pattern. Of inconsistency in godly character, first Timothy three and verse two, the bishop therefore, must be doesn't say sinless, perfect, already glorified in his spirit, so that the not yet has reached him in the now, no, but he must be without reproach. You must not be able to take hold of him and justly charge him with a patent pattern of inconsistency. And likewise in the Titus 1-7 passage, beyond reproach, without patterns of fault. Lenski comments on this by saying, It has been remarked that all of these save the ability to teach and that of not being a novice or beginner in Christianity are requirements that apply to all Christians, which is quite true, and shows that as far as morals are concerned, the New Testament has only one standard for both clergy, I would use the term those in office as pastors, and laity, and not two. Yet we may note that in the case of the members of the congregation, faults may be borne with... Which cannot be tolerated in ministers, for they are to be examples to the flock. Philippians three seventeen, Second Thessalonians three nine, and First Peter five three. A man who aspires to the ministry must be of proved character. Thus far, Lenski must be without reproach. Thirdly, in both passages, a requirement of unquestioned sexual. Integrity is a necessity. First Timothy 3 and verse 2. The bishop therefore must be without reproach a one woman man. The husband of one wife. And again in Titus 1 and verse 6. If any man is blameless, the husband of one wife. It is patent in his demeanor, in his interaction... With his own wife, in his interaction with women, this is a man who has one woman in his heart, in his eyes, in his hands, in his bed, in his desires. You have to be wicked and slanderous to even raise a question that there's any woman in his heart, in his eyes, in his bed, but his own wife. He must be patently not marginally and barely acceptably a one-woman man, but there must be unquestioned sexual purity and marital fidelity. And I think included under that head, my brethren, is that given how the devil has used the Internet, any man aspiring to the ministry let alone any man that you're responsibly shepherding, as I did with a young man this past week. In an oversight visit to have a checkup on his spiritual state, I get in his eyes and his face and I ask him, what are you doing with your computer? Are you bringing up images that are defiling your mind? Press the issue. Addiction to Internet pornography is epidemic, not only in the church, but in the ministry. I believe... Dobson's figures are, as they seek to minister to men, among evangelicals, 30-some-odd percent of evangelical pastors admit to pornographic addiction on the Internet. They are not one-woman men. They're finding delight in the sight of another woman's breast. And God says, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. They are indulging in mental adultery. Entering into fantasizing. And often with it, masturbation following. All in the privacy of their study. Late at night, early in the morning. An unsuspecting wife thinks she's got a devoted husband. Who's studying his eyeballs out. And he's ogling the filth and the rottenness that comes over the internet. Brethren... Don't be naive in this area. I beg of you, don't be naive. And if you sit here today and you're in that category, push the button on yourself. Not only before God, but go to a trusted brother and come clean about your need. One woman, man, it must be patent must be evident. Thirdly, in both passages there is a requirement of exemplary domestic piety. 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. One that rules well his own house. It doesn't say rules it perfectly. Having his children while they are still minors in subjection with all dignity. In other words, you go into his home and you say this man knows how to manage people. He knows how to use authority with clout and with gentleness, with grace, and with dignity. And it's evident that he knows how to manage people with the dynamics of grace operative in his own heart as he administers the stewardship of his headship in that home. Titus 1 and verse 6, similar emphasis. If any man is blameless, the husband of one wife having children that believe or having trustworthy children who are not accused of riot or unruly, while he still has governance over them and they are under his roof, there is no just accusation that they are guilty of a pattern of riotous or unruly living. It does not speak to the state of those children when they leave the home and choose to reject the God of their mother and father. And I have no sympathy for those pastors that take that position because I don't believe it's tenable exegetically and it's not a matter of self-defense that I have two of my three children who this day do not embrace the God of their mother and of their father. And I have swept through with honesty. I subjected myself when this became evident. I went to my fellow elders and I said, brethren... You must make me a faceless man. If the state of my adult children is the fruit of my delinquency, you've seen the patterns of my life as a father over decades. You must make that judgment and I will embrace it and I will step down from the ministry. But if their state is not in any way visibly attributable to my failures, then you must vindicate me before the people of God. So brethren... I'm not just talking about these things. There must be, there must be exemplary domestic piety. In the next place, in both passages, there is a requirement of graces indicative of sound judgment. The words sober judgment, Minded, point in this direction, 1 Timothy 3 2 and Titus 1 8. It's the opposite of the scatterbrained, forgetful person who cannot hold things together in a way they must be held together in the midst of the responsibilities of the office of a pastor. Further, in both passages, there's a requirement of graces essential to good relationships to people. 1 Timothy 3.3 No brawler, no striker, but gentle, not contentious. These are qualities essential to relate to people in a way that reflects the power of the gospel in the heart and life and emotions and even general social graces of the man of God. Titus 1.7b We have a similar emphasis The bishop must be blameless as God's steward, not self-willed, not soon angry, no brawler, no striker. And the striker is not just with the fist. You can strike with words, hurt and cut and wound. What's the common denominator? I say the common denominator is there is this requirement of the graces essential to good relationships with people. Further, in both passages, there is a requirement of grace is essential to patterns of self control. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 2 the bishop must be without reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober minded, temperate, self controlled, not just with regard to drink, but with regard to the overall pattern of his life. And Titus. The same emphasis is found, Titus 1, 8b. Titus 1, 8b. No brawler, no striker, not greedy, of filthy lucre, given to hospitality, a lover of good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. Now, brethren, I'm going to go from preaching to meddling. Lack of self-control can be expressed in ways not patent to the world. But when you don't have self-control over what goes on your plate and from your plate into your stomach, the whole world will know you lack self-control with regard to your physical appetite. You cannot call God's people to a life of self-denial, self-control, and moderation when this is hanging over the pole. I don't say this to hurt anyone present, but nobody, every one of you is faceless. You can't do it, brethren. You can't do it with clout. Lack of self-control with what goes in minus what goes out minus what is burned up stays on. There's the simple formula. Your weight is not a matter of my metabolism. No, 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 no. It's this simple formula. What goes in, minus what is burned up, that's metabolism, what goes out, that's the bathroom, minus what's burned up, physical exercise, stays on. Very simple. And if more and more is staying on, then either you've got to intensify what gets burned up or lower the amount of what goes in. At the end of the day, it's not complicated, brethren. You say, what do you know? You've never struggled with weight. What, do I have to balloon up to 250 and then lose it to prove? When people find out what I actually eat, they say, I couldn't exist on that. Sort of like partial fasting. But I know what my caloric intake is with respect to my disciplines of exercise, what I need to do to keep myself in the place where I can preach to you men with a good conscience and move around the side of the pulpit and say I'm not sucking it in. That's that's what's there. Now is that pleasant? No. Many a time I drive by the Dunkin' Donuts on the way home and everything in me wants to go in and dunk one of them donuts. I love Dunkin' Donuts. But I say, Albert, you don't have time for an extra half hour on the treadmill, what goes in with that Dunkin' Donut is going to go on your donut. So you say, no, self-control. It's part of what Paul meant when he said, I buffet my body, I bruise it till black and blue and keep it under. Brethren, I am not unsympathetic. I love food. I love the things that I shouldn't eat. And therefore, as a rule, don't eat. And the amounts and all the rest. So I'm not talking like someone who's... I've had preachers in my home that could sit at my table and eat three times what I eat and you'd think they'd been fasting for 40 days. They just are born to be skinny. (laughs) And uh, then when I think of, you know, we hold this truth to be self-evident that all men are created equal, I say, bah, humbug, we ain't all created equal. But brethren, self-control. And granted, there can be areas where a man is wickedly self-indulgent and no one will know but himself and God. But when you're self-indulgent with regard to your food and appetite, it becomes evident. And here the Word of God says we must be and must be in a way that is discernible and evident in our bearing and in our demeanor. Now, some of you have been your fair-haired boy up till now, but brethren, I love you enough to tell you the truth about yourself. And McShane said, never forget the man who loves you most is the one who tells you the most truth about yourself. And you need to stop saying, well, I know I need to do something about it and I ought to do something about it and begin to do something about it and make yourself accountable to responsible spiritual comrades and do whatever you must do to have a good conscience in this matter. Furthermore, in both passages, there's a requirement of the graces of pure motives or non-mercenary motives. 1 Timothy 3, 3b, three no lover of money. Titus 1, 7, I like the authorized in the old American standard. Not greedy of filthy lucre. I just like the sound of filthy lucre. Not greedy of base gain. Not greedy for stuff. And here again... I must express a concern I have that I see more and more men in the ministry thinking like they were in a career track in the corporate world, ready to be very forward in talking about their package and about their benefits and about their salary. I think there's something of an leaven of the world's perspective and every time I read the passages where Paul could say, look, 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 I set you an example. I preached to you at my own charges. And I not only worked with my own hands, but supplied the needs of others. Am I advocating that? No, because the general rule is, they that preach the gospel should live. Of the gospel, the labor's worthy of his hire. But I'm talking about a disposition. Never, never, never be justly suspected of having a grabbing hand for stuff. When I first came to North Caldwell in 62, to the little church there in the denomination, and it began to be evident that God might be nudging me in that direction, the board met with me, and I talked about all the things I wanted to talk about, and they talked about all the things they wanted to talk about. And when we were all done, they said, Now, uh, uh, Mr. Martin, is there anything else you want to talk about? No. You sure? Nothing else? No. You haven't raised the question of your salary. I said, no, why not? I don't intend to. If God's bringing me here, God will provide for me. And if he doesn't choose to provide all I need through your hand, he will have his ravens to provide for me. End of discussion. Well, I found out later that there were seven or eight men who were candidating for that church during the period of months when God brought me into the orbit of the awareness of their need. And almost without exception, This was the issue that caused men to withdraw their name. And when I said what I did, they said either this guy is for real or he's nuts. That came back to me years later. Now, am I saying that should... No, that's not a rule. I'm simply trying to illustrate the principle. And there may have been an element of pietistic naivete. But brethren, it got their conscience. This man is not out for the stuff and God help us if our people have any grounds to suspect that they exist for us rather than we exist for them furthermore in both passages there is a requirement of graces indicative of an aggressive love for people an aggressive love for people first timothy 3:2 given to hospitality What is behind that? Well, you know, in that situation where there were no motels and hotels and believers might go from one place to another, if the people of God didn't open their homes to them, they they were left out to dry. And so there is that disposition. Quickly now with just, oh my, the clock tells me I've got two minutes to wind things down here. Let me hasten. In Timothy, the grace is essential to effective leadership of others. That's peculiar to Timothy. 1 Timothy 3, 5. If a man knows not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care? Epimeleomai, the word used with respect to the good Samaritan. He took care of him, and then when he left, he told the innkeeper, innkeeper, you take care of him. There must be proven effective leadership skills in Timothy the grace is essential for a good testimony before the unconverted first Timothy 3 7 he must have a good testimony of those without and in Timothy the graces of tried experience which will in some measure neutralize the vulnerability to pride first Timothy 3 6 not a neophyte a recent convert why Lest, lest he fall prey to pride and the condemnation of the devil. And you have in your notes the quote from uh, the uh, comments of Fairbairn on that that are tremendously perceptive. So in summary, I say that this is only a cursory overview of those graces which are indicative of genuine, matured, balanced, proven Christian character For your own further and constant study, I commend to you the books and the commentaries that are listed. And above all, brethren, I urge you to periodically read through and pray over, remembering you can't coast, and where God has given you a measure of development and maturity of the graces to pray that they may increase and abound yet more and more, that your progress May be evident unto all. So when Paul comes back to Ephesus and he says to the people, How's my son Timothy doing? Oh, Paul, when you left him, you remember how he evidenced this in his graces and that in his ministry? Paul, you're, you're going to be surprised at what you see. He's growing before our eyes. That's what he said to Timothy, that your progress will be manifest unto all. And brethren, this is, ought to, this is what ought to be true of us by the grace and the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. So with regard to fitness for the office, at the head of the list is not gifts. You don't look for a young man to preach like a combination of Spurgeon and Whitfield and Edwards all back from the dead. You look for character, for graces, for symmetry and balance in those graces wrought in the heart by the Holy Spirit. Well, let's pray. Ask God to help us as we internalize these realities, O oh, our Father, we cry out with the apostle, who is sufficient for these things, but we believe your word is authoritative, and you intend it should govern your church, should govern us, govern our interaction with others, and we pray you would forgive us when we have wantonly treated your word with carelessness and indifference, if not with outright rebellion. Father, cleanse and purge us, and we ask that we may live to see your people who profess allegiance to your Son taking seriously this standard that you have set in your holy and infallible word. Help us, Lord, to be encouragers of one another, that we may all grow in likeness to your Son and be living embodiments of the message that we preach. Hear us, we plead in Jesus' name. Amen.